Well, Father, we come before you grateful that we can come together on the Lord's Day and just celebrate the resurrection and the triumph of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we start on this journey of Luke and we begin uh, just some text of anticipation, I pray that we will uh, really look forward to as well as look back on Jesus and his greatness and that we will just have a firm commitment to really exalt him in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, and in our church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was a couple of months ago when my wife and I were on a walk that we ran into a friend of ours uh, who told us that he acquired some concert tickets but wasn't sure if he could go because of some health concerns. And he offered the tickets to Becky and I. I asked, well, who, who is it? They said, uh, it's the Little River Band. You guys ever heard of the Little, Little River Band? If you've ever listened to music while you're in an elevator, <laughs> you would probably recognize some of their songs. So, not, it's true, it's true. So we went to the Granada Theater and they said show up at 7, and at 7 o'clock, the Little River Band didn't go up. They had the opening act, which was this musician from Kansas City. And in between flipping his hair, smiling and winking at the audience, he kept on telling us how great Little River Band is. And he said, the reason why you guys are here is because you love music and you love listening to good music and quality music. And, and he was really in the midst of this six-song uh, set, promoting his own music, but also promoting the headliner, right? And that's what... Uh, that's what the opening act does, right? They are brought in to kind of warm up the audience to help people uh, appreciate and get in the mood to listen to some good music, but also they want to be upstaged by the headliner. Where when you watch the opening act, you think if the opening act is this good, just imagine how good the headliner is going to be. And so we are starting our journey through the Gospel of Luke. And before we get there, Luke draws our attention to the opening act, to John the Baptist. And what we're about to read is the opening act of the opening act. We're going to read the Annunciation of the Birth of John. So if you haven't already, turn with me to Luke 1, 15 through 25. Luke chapter 1, I'm sorry, verse 5 through 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled. And when he saw him, 
and fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to their Lord, their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me. In the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. This is the Annunciation of, uh, of John the Baptist. And what's really interesting is how the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus are intertwined. Both of their births are announced by uh, an angel, specifically a named angel, angel named Gabriel. Uh, both of them are to have prophecies that name them ahead of time. Both of them are to experience a miraculous birth, and both of them are to lead Israel towards a path of of redemption. And redemption is something that was needed. If you look at the opening line, you see that this took place in the days of the king Herod, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now, Herod, he was a uh, kind of a puppet king, a client king of, of the Romans. He was voted into power in 80 B.C., and in, or sorry, in 40 B.C., and in 37 B.C., he solidified his power by basically crushing all opposition. He was ruthless, but he was uh, somewhat effective. He led many building projects, including building the current temple in 20 B.C. Uh, he also managed to preserve his reign through three successive Roman emperors, he navigated uh, Israel through a, uh, through a famine, but he also, especially towards the end of his days, became somewhat paranoid, almost like Stalin. He had his wife murdered, his sons murdered, his brother-in-law murdered. When he heard that there was going to be a king born in Bethlehem, he sent a brood squad to murder all the baby boys. The guy was unstable. And so here you have... 
Zechariah and Elizabeth, two righteous people living in a dark world where they were basically under the dominion of a king who was under the dominion of the Roman Empire. It's been 400 years since God last spoke to Israel through the prophet of Malachi. And there was a general hardness and dullness of heart. They weren't worshiping Baal anymore. But they had an outwardly religious look in general in Israel without a real conviction of the heart. And the reason why they're under this Roman king is because, well, they had rejected God and to a certain extent, God had rejected them. But all that's going to change with the birth of a baby. And not necessarily the first baby you think of. It actually changes with the birth of the baby John. Now, when you read through the Gospels, and you read through the Gospel of Luke, sometimes you just want to cut to Jesus, right? Enough with this prologue, enough with all this announcement about John. Let's just go straight to Jesus. But the way Luke designed his gospel, the way God designed the, even the birth of Jesus is he did not want Jesus to be introduced by some schmo. He wanted him to be introduced by a great man. He wanted a fitting opening act. And when you look at John, he was the opening act who knew he was going to be upstaged by Jesus. And, and John, knowing this, doesn't necessarily pull punches. He doesn't feel like he needs to fail or sing off-key so that Jesus looks that much better. He can be as great as God wants him to be, knowing that Jesus will always upstage him. And that really is kind of a paradigm for just how we are to live as well, right? Our goal in life is to be upstaged by Jesus. Right? People look at this church and say, man, what a great church. Well, we're just the body of Christ here on earth. Just wait till you meet Jesus. If you think the Lord has really changed us and he's really manifested Christ in our life in some limited sense, well, just wait until you meet Jesus, right? Our goal is to be upstaged by Jesus. And so as we are introduced to John, we are introduced to the man who will be upstaged by Jesus and the man who wants to point to uh, a, a redeemer. And he, he begins the redemption process of Israel. And so when you kind of look at a general outline here, what we're going to see is the pedigree, the problem, the privilege, the promise, and the proof. And all of this points to the greatness of John, right? This is the opening act. We haven't even met John yet, but judging by his birth, we know he's going to be great. And when we meet John, judging by his ministry and the person he's going to point to, we're going to say, Jesus is something special. And what's so fascinating about all of this is how the birth of John is packaged. It's packaged in what I call the wrapping paper of redemption. Now, I use wrapping paper on purpose. If, you know, one of the great Christmas traditions, the one I've always enjoyed, is gift receiving and giving. But, you know, I, let's just be real. When I grew up, you'd see the Christmas tree, and there'd be all these beautifully wrapped presents. Now, if the purpose of the wrapping paper is just to obscure the gift, we'd just put Amazon boxes underneath the tree, right? Uh, and what, what fun would that be? 
But there is something about taking the gift and wrapping it in beautiful paper, ornamenting it with a nice shiny ribbon bow, putting it under the tree, stacking them all neatly. That just kind of adds to the majesty of Christmas. And so when we look at the gift of John the Baptist, we see that there's this wrapping paper of redemption that comes through in this narrative where what we're about to read is the, the redemption of two Israelites who are faithful. And this redemption that we see in this brief narrative points to this greater redeeming work that will be upstaged by a great redeemer. Does that make sense? That's the flow that we are seeing here. So we're going to go through this, and then as we do, we're going to just kind of reflect on just this whole concept of being upstaged by Jesus. So first of all, we're going to look at the pedigree, starting in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So we are introduced to Zechariah, who was a priest in the division of Abijah. Now, during this time, they estimate there were probably 18,000 priests, and there were 24 different divisions. So every division would have about 750 people that were a part of it. He was part of the division of Abijah, and he was married to Elizabeth, who was a descendant of Aaron. Now, as a priest, you weren't required to marry a priestly wife, but it was certainly seen as a benefit, uh, something that added some genealogical credibility. But they weren't just righteous by virtue of their relations. We see in verse 6, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. I mean, that's a commendation. I mean, how would you like it if the Lord said about you, that you walk blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, right? Now, we all know that nobody does it perfectly except for Jesus. But they were the real deal. I mean, these were true, genuine Old Testament believers who, in spite of some of the personal pain they experienced, stayed faithful to the Lord. So here we have a righteous man and a righteous woman serving in a priestly capacity, but they had a problem. Verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, we just went through Ruth and one of the major themes, right, was that if you were a Hebrew woman without a child, without a son specifically, that was a, a shame and a reproach. I mean, infertility is, is hard enough, but when people look at you that you're somehow cursed that that's especially hurtful and when you look at the old testament there was some reason there was a reason why they would connect um, infertility with being cursed in leviticus 20 20 through 21 if a man lies with his uncle's wife he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness and they shall bear their sin they shall die childless if a man takes his brother's wife it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall die childless. Right? Childless is it's a punishment. Deuteronomy 28.15, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then these curses 
shall come upon you and overtake you. Then skipping ahead to verse 18. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Right? If you're cursed with being childless. And so here is Elizabeth, a righteous woman, and there's always exceptions, right? You had Hannah, you have Sarah, righteous women who haven't been graced with a little one. And in that culture, where religion kind of explained everything, uh, there would be some, well, some reproach being given to her. You know, Elizabeth, I was reading Genesis And there's this plant called a mandrake plant. You take some of it, your troubles will be over. You know, Elizabeth, when I finally learned to be content with my state, then the Lord provided a child. You know, Elizabeth, I I don't know what I did to deserve my eight sons. Hashtag blessed, right? (laughs) Hashtag blessed. Yeah, and all of that would get to you for, right? There was reproach. There was reproach. And so here you have two righteous people who experienced a curse of barrenness. But then things begin to turn as Zechariah is given a privilege. Verse 8, Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty... According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside the hour of incense. Now, this is during a non-feast week. And during a non-feast week, one of the 24 divisions would take a turn. So every division basically had two weeks a year where they would continue to run an offering at the temple. It'd start off where you'd have either a morning or an afternoon session. They'd slaughter an animal. And then they would take some incense and some burning coals and put the burning coals on the altar of incense. And then they would sprinkle the incense on the burning coals as the coal bearer would go ahead and leave the premises. And the incense bearer would bow down and pray to the Lord. And the incense represented the prayers of the people of God to the person of God, as the temple was a place where God came to earth. It's where heaven and earth met. And the deal is, because there were so many priests, you only had one chance in your lifetime to do this. Now, when you look at the rules for priests, you could be a priest and do this starting at the age of 25, but when you're 50, you're forced into retirement. And here is Zechariah, who's old and advanced in years. You guys ever seen The Price is Right? Okay. Yeah, we have some daytime TV watchers. But if you know it, they always call up four people at the beginning of the show. And they all take turns trying to get on stage by guessing the price of certain products. Well, this is the last round. And Zechariah hasn't been called up to the stage yet. But on this day, they drew lots. And they said the magic words. Zechariah. Son of Abijah, come on down. (laughs) He was chosen at the last moment for the privilege of presenting incense and prayers. And this is what happens. 
he would stand patiently, wait for the animal to be sacrificed, and then he and his partner would go into the temple. The partner would lay the coals on the altar of incense, bow, and then begin to walk away. And then Zechariah put the incense on top of the coals, and then he would bow down and, and prostrate himself. And at that moment, after his partner left and he was alone, we see the promise in verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now it has been 400 years since there has been any divine human contact. The last time that the Lord spoke to the people of Israel was through the prophet Malachi. And so he is bowing down and he looks up and there is an angel to the right side of the altar of incense, the, the, the honored place. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Now, one of the drawbacks of being a pastor is that people get really nervous when I say, can I talk to you for a second? Yeah, sure. When do you want to talk, right? Because they're nervous. So you're Zechariah, you're bowing down, and there's an angel, and the implication is the Lord has a word to say to you. Now, Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. He reassures him. Then he gives him some good news. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, what's interesting is when he bowed down and he prayed for Israel, he wasn't necessarily saying, while I'm at it, can you give me a son? He was praying for the people of Israel. He was praying for the nation of Israel. He was praying that the Lord would restore them to their former glory, that the Lord would redeem them. And what is happening here is his past prayers for his son are going to be the means by which the Lord will answer his prayers for the people. Zechariah, I've got good news. God's going to give you a son. And this son is going to do something special for the people of Israel. His name will be John, which means Yahweh is gracious. And you will have joy, verse 14, and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Right? Anytime babies are born. I mean, isn't that a cause of celebration? Yeah, I was walking around fellowship time and I just saw a bunch of people just all kind of clustered behind a row and they were looking at the twins that were just born. It's pretty awesome, right? It's a cause of celebration. But this is something more. He's going to bring joy to not just the immediate family and all the relatives, but to many people, for he will be great before the Lord. Right, you've waited all your life, John, to have a son. And your son is not going to be a drug addicted to embarrassment to your family. Your son is not going to be somebody who will turn against Israel. Your son is not only going to be, not only going to be a, a normal upstanding Israelite, your son is going to be great before the Lord. He is going to be elevated before the Lord. We learn in Luke 7, 28, we read Jesus' assessment of John. I tell you, among those born of women, none 
is greater than John. I mean, can you imagine if the Lord said that about you? He will be great, and we'll talk more about that later on. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He's going to be consecrated. He won't be touching alcohol. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but when you are serving in a priestly role, you are not allowed to drink. Your, your senses had to be sharp. They could not be dulled by any alcohol. He was to be fully yielded to the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish what he was called to do. And what's interesting, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, but you'd never see John work miracles. He is filled with the Holy Spirit because his ministry is going to be about preaching. And he will turn away many children of Israel. He'll tu- I'm sorry, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. He's going to institute a revival. Now, when you think about revival, for a revival to be a revival, there has to be kind of a reawakening, which implies that they were awake at some point in time to begin with. Right? You'd never have a revival in Afghanistan. And Afghanistan would be fresh virgin territory for the gospel. But you can have revival in a place like Western Europe, which was at one time the cradle of the Reformation, one of the great revivals this world has ever seen. In this case, John is going to be an instrument of God to bring revival to Israel. And it says even more, verse 17, And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers to children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, what's fascinating about this is if you guys remember Malachi, which I preached through many moons ago, the ending of Malachi says in Malachi 4, 5 through 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Right? Basically, what God says here is, in the future, I'm going to send a prophet. I'm going to send you Elijah. That is the next prophetic moment. And here is Elijah. Now, he's not actually Elijah. He comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. He has a ministry of confrontation. And through this confrontation, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He's going to reconcile families. You know, often when I do marriage counseling, I have this triangle diagram where you have the husband, you have the wife, and you have God. And I kind of point out as both parties grow closer to God, they grow closer to each other. In the same way, when fathers and perhaps sons grow closer to the Lord, they grow closer to each other that there is repentance and repentance leads to reconciliation where the family is being brought back together again. The foolish will be returned to the just. They will reject the worldly ways and follow the ways of the just and they will be united together. This is about how John will spark a revival in Israel and they're going to be prepared for the Lord. They'll be convicted of sin. They'll be ready to change. They'll be ready for the moment where they will hear about a Redeemer. Now, if you're Zechariah, all your life you've been praying for this revival. Do we have people who pray for revival here? I'm sure we do, right? You pray for revival. That is your heart desire. You want to see change and spiritual transformation. 
So he says, that's going to happen. And even better, your son is going to be the means by which that takes place. I can't think of any better news for someone like Zechariah. But he wants proof. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. This is probably a reflection of he's experienced a lot of disappointment in his life. Sometimes you just don't want to get your hopes up. I don't know what's going on, but he's like, "I, I just don't know if that can happen. Never mind the fact that Abraham and Sarah experienced the same miracle. In fact, when, when Abraham was told that, he just believed God. Romans 4.19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. He had a lapse in faith. He wasn't necessarily willing to take God at his word, and so he He asked for a sign. And the angel answered, I am Gabriel. Gabriel makes an appearance in Daniel. He's associated with the great day of the Lord. He is regarded as really one of the great angels. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you, to prepare, to bring you, speak to you and bring you this good news. So Zechariah is praying, and he sees an angel in the temple, a supernatural apparition, right, is there. He appeared there going through walls or however angels transport. He is clearly somebody who is sent by the Lord. He is speaking to him in intelligible language. He identifies himself as Gabriel. I mean, the implication is here, like, that is the sign. An angel speaking to you. He's telling you all this. And Zechariah's like, yeah, that's good, but what else he got? Got anything else? Like maybe a child being born? Oh, I forgot. Well, the angel is gracious enough to give him a sign. And behold, you will be silent, unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time you say this is kind of a form of discipline but all of a sudden he couldn't speak he got the sign he got the message there is good news i'm sure he's excited and not excited at the same time well this whole interchange took some time And in verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. Now, they knew all the stories that when God was displeased with worship, he often would incinerate people. Maybe not often, but he has done some precedents. And so the priest might be looking around saying, do we need to get a body bag here? Why is he taking so long? But then he comes out. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had been seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. This is the first recorded instance of charades in human history. <laughs> right? 
right? I don't know sign language, but I pretend I do, right? And when the time of service was ended, he went to his home. And he gives Elizabeth the good news through his perfected sign language. After these days, Elizabeth conceived for five months, and she kept herself hidden. And I think that's kind of interesting, right? She gets this good news, and she doesn't tell everyone. She keeps herself hidden. And I think verse 25 kind of explains why. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Right? She has borne the reproach long enough. And to go and announce to everybody, guess what? I'm pregnant. You poor thing. Infertility has made you delusional. <laughs> she was going to wait till she had a baby bump before she told the good news. I think that's the easiest explanation. She knows that by an act of grace... She is being vindicated, right? This is a story of redemption. John the Baptist prepares a way for the Redeemer. And it's only fitting that redemption bleeds into this annunciation because really the opening act is, kind of needs to be of the same genre of the headliner, right? You do not have... Kenny G opening for Jay-Z. You don't have Kiss opening for Celine Dion. Right? You don't have fill in the rock band name, Pearl Jam opening for Garth Brooks. It just doesn't quite fit. I just dated myself with all those bands, but <laughs> when you enter pastoral ministry, you sometimes get into Christian music time warp, so forgive me. But what this does is, to expand the ministry of it, there's, there's a redemptive focus to this story. This is the wrapping paper that opens the wrapping paper of the Redeemer, who will then point to the greatest Redeemer. And what's really fascinating about all this is, even within this, there are some lessons of how God redeems people, right? Number one, we learn that redemption is brought about through Repentance. He is to turn people from their sins. Luke 3.3, 3, he, John the Baptist, went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming the baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. Now, people were hardened by their sin. And instead of, let's say, advocating for political change, talking about social injustice, trying to build relief organizations, all of those are good things, right? His primary focus was on personal confrontation of sin to break hearts with the Word of God so that they might be softened to receive the good news of redemption through Jesus Christ. His focus was on preaching repentance, Right? He was the greatest man born of woman because he focused on repentance and personal repentance. Secondly, we also learn to have this redemptive ministry that God's word is enough. I find it interesting that John the Baptist doesn't have any recorded miracles. I also find it interesting that Zechariah, though being a godly man, 
though he saw an angel, though he heard God's word from an angel, he wanted a miracle. He wanted something more. Now, do you remember the audience of this book? It's Theophilus, who is a, we'll call him a third-generation Christian. And Luke is writing to him during a time where the signs and wonders had faded off the scene. He is giving him a written account, and, and Theophilus, obviously, he wants proof, right? And he's giving him proof. He wants signs. He's recording the signs that were offered. But the idea is that God's word should be enough for Theophilus. God's word should be enough for belief. And there's a real faith trap when people start demanding signs. Uh, A good friend of mine who was a roommate of mine when I was in seminary, he was in my wedding, um, deconstructed his faith. He was a guy with two theological degrees, pastored out of church, taught in Christian schools, worked for a nonprofit to end abortion. And he kind of explained his journey where he said his wife was extremely sick in the hospital and he was concerned and he felt like God didn't really care about him. He began to have doubts. He began to watch apologetic debates and he just wished that God would appear from out behind a cloud and just wave high just to say, I care. For him, the Bible wasn't enough for him anymore. God's revelation wasn't enough for him. He wanted a sign. And it's interesting, as we keep on reading in Luke, we come across the rich man and Lazarus. Story told by Jesus where the rich man dies and goes to the equivalent of hell. Lazarus goes to the equivalent of heaven. And, and, and this rich man has a conversation with Abraham. And he is in pain. He's in suffering. He wants to warn his family of the situation that he's in. So he says, send, send up this poor man and, and so that he might warn them. And this is the response in Luke 16, 31. Abraham says to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Right? Revelation needs to be enough. The Word of God needs to be enough. To have a ministry of repentance, it has to be centered on on the Word of God to point to Jesus. I think thirdly, as you have this ministry of restoration, preaching repentance will make you unpopular pretty quickly, won't it? Every time we preach the good news of the gospel, we have to preach the bad news that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We preach the bad news that as you are, you are not acceptable before the Lord. In fact, God is rather angry with you right now. And did you know people don't like being told that? You'll become a pariah. Zechariah and Elizabeth were pariahs to a certain extent. They shared the reproach. I half wonder if their righteous life might be one of those things that their neighbors despised them for and they wanted some proof that yeah sure they look like they have it all together but they're barren i wonder what sin they're doing so they never felt the conviction of the righteous life john the baptist will need vindication as well he he will be betrayed by one of herod the great's descendants who makes a lusty promise imprisons him and ultimately beheads him he'll point to a messiah He'll be treated as a pariah. But 
vindication will come with the resurrection of Jesus. It will come eventually with the resurrection of John the Baptist and our resurrection where our faith will be sight. You see, in all of this, there is a ministry that is pointing and preparing people for Jesus. And the people who are doing the pointing want to be upstaged by Jesus. They want to be upstaged. You know, when you go through this narrative, we, we kind of look at, there's the enunciation of, of John the Baptist, who is going to be born through a miracle of God opening up a barren womb. And then there's Jesus, who will one-up that by being born of a virgin. John the Baptist will have a wonderful prophetic ministry, but Jesus will have an even bigger ministry. John the Baptist will be honored. Jesus will be worshipped. And if you're not careful, you can almost think about Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now remember what that did to Saul. One of my boys' favorite movies is Megamind. They forced us to watch it last week. I redeemed it with the sermon illustration. (laughs) And if you don't know the plot of Megamind, it's a superhero story where you have two bursts at the beginning. One is this beautiful, popular hero by the name of Brad Pitt. And then you have Megamind, who is this blue humanoid with an abnormally large head voiced by Will Ferrell. They both get sent away from their destructive planets to Earth, and while in flight, Metroman's space pod bumps Megamind's space pod so that Megamind lands in a prison while Metroman lands in a palatial palace with a loving family. They go to school. Well, Megamind is loved by everybody and is the teacher's pet where Megamind always gets in trouble. And eventually, Megamind has enough, decides he's going to be second banana no more, and he goes bad to the bone. And they play that song. (laughs) You know, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. And how would most people respond? Well, this is what, how John responds. In Luke 3, 15 through 16, As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. You see, his greatness is in knowing his place, knowing that he's the opening act, and he wants to be upstaged by Jesus. And you know what? John could be as great as he's called to be. He doesn't need to pull any punches. He doesn't need to fail on purpose to give little Jesus a chance. He knows that as great as God has made him to be, Jesus will always be greater, and he's fine with that. And so as we kind of start the story of redemption, Right, Our redemption points to kind of the greater work of our Redeemer, right? As much as you might be a a source of, of wonder and inspiration to many people for how the Lord has redeemed you, 
you're just the opening act for the Redeemer, which is Jesus. When you look at this church and all that the Lord has done in this church, being the fully formed body of Christ, we're just the opening act that's going to be upstaged by Jesus. And willing to be upstaged is the mark of human greatness because our whole purpose of existence when we're in heaven is not to have people look at us, but to get people to look to Christ and realize that he is the headliner and that ultimately is all about him. So as we start this journey, I just want to ask yourself, are you okay with being upstaged? Are you okay with being upstaged? Is that what you want? Let's pray. Father, we come before you just grateful for the life, ministry, and message of Luke and the life and ministry of John. And I pray that all of us will want to be upstaged by Jesus, that he will increase and we will decrease for your glory in Jesus' name.